from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. We, all, we didn't get any honey until last year. That was our first year getting honey. We started out with two hives, and we had a lot of swarms the first year, so. This week on our show, we visit with beekeepers at a honey sling. We talk with growers about cucumber grafting and a biochemist about yeast hunting and sour beer making. Harvest Public Media has stories on a conservation reserve program and COVID testing for farm workers. All that just ahead in the next hour here on Earth Eats. Stay with us. Eats is produced from the campus of Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. We wish to acknowledge and honor the indigenous communities native to this region and recognize that Indiana University is built on indigenous homelands and resources. We recognize the Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people as past, present, and future caretakers of this land. Let's go to Renee Reed and the Earth Eats News. Hi, Renee. Hello, Kate. Some labor advocates say a recent executive order from President Biden could lead to stronger worker protections in meatpacking plants and other essential workplaces. OSHA must revise its COVID-19 workplace guidelines and consider new emergency standards, like mask mandates, by mid-March. Labor advocates like Darcy Traumenhauser at the nonprofit Nebraska Appleseed hope the order will make social distancing, testing, and PPE enforceable requirements. This is really important because it's showing movement forward and creating a focus on worker safety for the people doing essential work during the pandemic. But what it lands on, we won't know for another couple weeks. Biden also asked the agency to beef up its enforcement of protections, especially towards employers who put large numbers of workers at risk for COVID-19. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has finalized the rules for growing industrial hemp this year. That means farmers in Missouri, Illinois, and other states can get ready for the planting season. Dale Ludwig of the Missouri-based Midwest Hemp Association says the rules are fair and will help producers continue to try out the alternative crop. We look forward to continuing to, to grow this industry, which, uh, you know, it's it's just really new. So there's a and there'll be a, a lot of progress made in the next five years. The final rules include a longer time to harvest, easier disposal of bad crops, and more leniency in violations. Ludwig says right now the biggest market for hemp is for the supplement CBD. He says Midwest farmers won't be able to really see a big benefit in growing hemp until it is more widely used as a fiber in clothes and other products. Thanks to Harvest Public Media's Christina Stella and Jonathan All for those stories. For Earth Eats News, I'm Renee Reed.
many farmers may not re-enroll in a conservation program that plays an important role in regenerating soil and water. As Harvest Public Media's Seth Bodine reports, lower payments are influencing their decisions. My CRP land is back to the southeast. Mary Chris Barth drives down a highway. She's giving a tour of the area and there's golden plains for miles. Barth has many names for this region. This is the armpit of Oklahoma. We're on basically the 100th meridian. And they say the 100th meridian is where the west begins. As Barth drives, she points out portions of land that are part of the Conservation Reserve Program, or CRP. The program works like this. Farmers enter 10 to 15 year contracts and agree not to farm it and add plant species that will help the environment. Occasionally, they can make hay or let their cows graze it. In exchange, the Federal Farm Service Agency cuts them a check for every acre. When it was established in the 80s, Barth says it was a hot commodity for farmers at the tail end of the farm crisis. So it was a salvation for a whole bunch of people who were about to lose their property. And they could t turn a really good income without significant inputs and save the farm. Today, CRP is the biggest conservation program for private land in the country, with more than 20 million acres. Barth says the pay used to be good, about $40 per acre, but that's changed in some areas. In her county, it's about $18. The rates are now determined by an arm of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Just dropped and dropped and dropped. Significant portion of it will not be renewed this go-around just because of the Chad Booty is one of those farmers who won't be renewing some of his land. He has 800 acres of CRP land with 160 inspiring soon. Currently, he makes $50 per acre, but it's dropping to $19 if he re-enrolls. He says he's going to use the land to graze cattle instead. I think in our area, you know, that $19 an acre, I think more and more people are going to uh, fence it and graze it. A lot of our land in this area, you know, grass is... 15 to $25 an acre. Besides the money, farmers also have an interest in preventing soil erosion and promoting wildlife. Jessica Barnes and a team from Virginia Tech did a survey looking at why farmers in Oklahoma, Kansas, and other southern Great Plains states enroll in the program. CRP participation is often heavily motivated by an interest in financial stability that at the time, CRP, that CRP rental payment that comes annually makes financial sense for the landowner. She says about two-thirds of land in that region is set to expire by 2022. But farmers that leave the program don't always go back to plowing the land. Barnes says more than half of those surveyed kept their land in grass. Joy Alspaugh is the conservation program chief for the Oklahoma Farm Service Agency. At first, she says the amount of land expiring in the next couple of years worried her, but last year's enrollment was good. So we had a pretty good percentage that reapplied, and then also our acceptance rate was really high last year. Ospa says keeping erodible land untouched prevents dust bowl conditions. CRP helps with that. She says while it's too soon to tell what enrollment will look like this year, she says she has a good feeling based on past enrollment that soil will remain untouched and in place. Seth Bodine, Harvest Public Media. Harvest Public Media is a reporting collective covering food and farming in Indiana, Illinois, Nebraska, Kansas, Missouri, Iowa, basically throughout the heartland. 
You can learn more about their work at harvestpublicmedia.org. Next up, we'll visit a beekeeper's club to learn how to extract honey from a honeycomb. That's just ahead after a short break here on Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. Stay with us. Eats has a YouTube channel. Yes, we do. These days, my colleague Peyton Knobluk has been posting his recipe videos featuring me, Kate Young, cooking in my home kitchen. We've baked shortbread and savory hand pies, forgotten cookies, a bright carrot ginger soup, and what I like to call the best salad in the world. This week, we did a fragrant couscous dish studded with dried fruits and toasted pine nuts. If that sounds tasty to you, and believe me, it is, check it out by searching for Earth Eats on YouTube. You'll find us. Go ahead and subscribe and let us know what you think. You can send an email to eartheats at gmail.com. Wintertime is downtime for beekeepers. It's a time for waiting, watching, and hoping that your bees have what they need to get through the winter. If they do make it through the cold months and have a successful spring and summer, you might have a chance to harvest some of their extra honey in the fall. A few years ago, I attended a honey sling in Bedford, Indiana. It's a honey extraction event. Hi there. And this one was organized by the Bedford Beekeepers Club. Curtis McBride hosts the event in his shop, a large warehouse-style building with two industrial fans running non-stop. McBride is the founder of the Beekeepers Club. I've had bees for years and years, but uh, really got back into it since I retired teaching. I taught school for 34 years, and so I retired from that and and, uh, really got back into it more. My grandfather had bees when I was a little kid. Of course, he died when I was 12, so, and they sold all of his equipment, so I didn't get any more experience with them after that, but always liked them, enjoyed being around them, so, but I didn't have anybody to learn from. There was nobody around who knew how to keep bees, and so once I got back into it this time, one of my former students, he had a few bees, and he wanted to learn more, so we decided, why don't we just form a club? And we did, and... Everybody's welcome to come. There's no charge for the club membership. Only thing is, you know, just if we have some event going on, we'd like people to help us with it. We'll have a bee school in January. The last Saturday in January, we always have a school there. Last two years, we've had over 100 people. 
The club also offers a bee intensive at the Lawrence County Fairgrounds every year, with hands-on beekeeping workshops and guest speakers from around the country. They share equipment and hold events like this honey sling. They also order packages of bees in bulk. Uh, 200 packages of bees in this past year from California for people in our club. We brought in 200 last year and 100 the year before that. So there's some hives getting started around. Club members Teresa Moon and her son Adam Brown are fairly new to beekeeping. I'm Teresa Moon here with my son Adam Brown and we do the honey stuff together. We, don't, we didn't get any honey until last year. That was our first year getting honey. We started out with two hives and we had a lot of swarms the first year so you know learning and not really knowing what we were doing. Thank goodness we have Kurt and people like him to help us who are willing to answer newbie questions. <laughs> the process of extracting honey is fairly straightforward. But first you have to get the honey supers, the part of the hive with all the honey in it, from the bee yard to McBride's shop. Adam Brown explains the process. We sprayed honey begone on a uh, felt board, fume board, and place it on top of the hive. And they don't like that honey begone. It's an all natural. I'm not sure what exactly is in it. And the bees move down. Plus, I smoked them a little bit to try to get them to move down, and left it on there about five minutes or so, and then kind of shook the box, tried to shake them out of it. And then most of them are gone by that point. So then you put them in your truck, or what did you do? Uh, I took them and stored them in her garage, stacked them up, and covered them up to keep the bees out of them. I'd done that uh, Wednesday and Thursday, and then we loaded them up this morning and brought them over here. Once they arrive at the shop on Saturday morning, they start by uncapping the honeycomb. Uncapping honey frames. Uh, you gotta take the, scrape the caps off so that the honey can be extracted. What's the tool that you're using for that? A knife and a, what's this thing called? Scraper. Next, they load the frames into a large metal cylinder with a wheel-type structure in the center. The frames clip onto the wheel. Once all the frames are loaded, they close the lid, start up the motor, and the center wheel begins to spin. This is an extractor. It holds nine of the frames. And what it does, it's a centrifuge, and it'll spin it and spin the honey out. The bees build in these combs. The, the bees aren't straight in. The lines aren't. They're actually tilted just a little bit, the wax is to hold the honey in till they get it cured out. Once it's dry, that's when we, and it's capped, that's when we take it and extract it. You see it spin around. And, and it'll sling that honey out. We'll open this valve and drain it out. Teresa Moon is on the other end of the shop, cleaning buckets. The buckets, that spigot that opens, you, the, the strainers will fit right into this, and then the strained honey will go into the buckets, and then we can use these to, to put the honey in jars. The buckets are your typical white, five-gallon food grade, but these have sturdy spigots on the bottom for getting the honey into the jars. 
Beekeeper Club has just been great. I mean, you know, we've got all the equipment everybody needs, you know, if you want to, if you're just starting out and you don't have to, the first, well, maybe the first time we tried to extract any honey, we just thought if we cut it off, cut the caps off of it and let it drain, it would work, but it really didn't. We ended up with very little honey, so. Everybody's really nice, works together, you know. Sharing equipment is one of the advantages of joining a beekeeping club like this one. The knowledge sharing is also important. As any beekeeper knows, there are many things that can threaten a hive. Lately, a destructive pest called a varroa mite has been a big concern for beekeepers across the country. I asked Moon if the varroa mite has been a problem for them this year. Yeah, they're a big problem. Um, you can't really, you can just barely see them, so sometimes you don't know you've got them until it's kind of too late. So, but we treat um, twice a year in the spring and we treat in the fall before the winter. Some people don't kind of survival of the fittest kind of thing, but I don't know. Some of this stuff is brought in from other countries and it wouldn't be here naturally. So I feel like the bees, they need a little help, you know. <laughs> we'll help them. Teresa Moon has plans for her honey. My husband puts it in his coffee. We put it in tea in the wintertime especially. I make a kind of an herbal tea whenever we've got a cold and put lemon and honey in it. And that's kind of our, our cough drop, soothy cough drop kind of thing. We use it for that. And then um, I make a granola too that I used to sell at the Orleans Farmer's Market. But now that I'm not really doing that anymore, I make it at Christmas time for family. Honey and oatmeal, you know, oatmeal honey. Brown sugar is that one. And then there's another one I make that has maple syrup and pecans. Well, it must be exciting to be getting this much honey. Uh, yeah, yeah. We're, we're happy to be getting this much honey. <laughs> In case you're having a hard time picturing it, you can see photos of the honey extractor on our website, eartheats.org. That story on the Bedford Beekeeping Club's Honey Sling event originally aired in 2017. The rollout of the coronavirus vaccine provides hope that the end of the pandemic is near. But it's not over yet. And in some parts of the country, access to COVID-19 testing is still a problem. 
For Harvest Public Media, Christine Herman looks at efforts to address this issue for agriculture workers in a small Midwest town. For more than a decade, 35-year-old Sarai has been a farm worker. She spends much of the summer and fall cultivating corn and soybeans in the fields of central Illinois. She asked we not use her last name since she's undocumented. Sarai says being a farm worker is the most beautiful thing. She hasn't been in the fields lately since she's been focused on getting three kids through virtual schooling. But she says the past year has been devastating to many agricultural workers who've been struck by the virus. Last fall, Sarai decided to get a coronavirus test when she thought she might have been exposed. But the nearest COVID-19 testing site is 15 miles away, with no public transportation available. And she doesn't own a car. Sarai says she borrowed a car from a friend and got her test, which was negative. But she thinks the transportation issue probably prevents others in her town from getting a COVID test when they need one. Early on in the pandemic, University of Illinois anthropologist Gilberto Rosas was struck by how easy it was for him, a work-from-home professor, to get tested, compared to people working nearby on farms and at meat plants, which had big outbreaks. We walk down two flights of stairs, go out the back door, and we can get testing. Whereas these people who are at the forefront, who work in the fields, who work in the plants, they lack that kind of access. Rosas and his colleagues set out to study what was causing the virus to spread among ag workers. They quickly realized something needed to be done to address this issue of testing access. We are doctors, but we are not MDs. We are not MDs, we are not nurses. And recognizing what we lacked, we began looking for community partners. They teamed up with local clinics and began hosting pop-up COVID testing sites in the central Illinois town of Rantoul. They advertise the events in English and Spanish and have tried to use their long-standing community connections to bolster turnout. On a recent Monday afternoon, Rosas stood in a parking lot in the freezing cold, wearing head-to-toe protective gear, alongside clinic staff who screened people arriving for testing. They've been frustrated by low turnout at many testing events. At some, barely more than a dozen people showed up. That could be for a number of reasons, including fear of a positive result. Missing out on two weeks of work could be financially devastating, says Diana Tellifson Torres, who leads the United Farm Workers Foundation based in California. We're talking about low-wage workers. Every penny counts. She says in the U.S., there's just not a good safety net for many of these workers. When you have to worry about putting food on your own table for your family, sometimes that is the focus because there isn't another option. There's also mistrust and fear, especially among undocumented workers who prefer to fly under the radar. So building trust is critically important, she says, not just to get people to show up for testing, but also for the vaccine. Torres says she's heard from farm workers who are eager to get it, but others have reservations. One of the big challenges is also like, what is this vaccine? What does it contain? What are you putting in my body? That's something Sarai, the farm worker in Illinois, worries about too. She isn't planning to get the vaccine. She says what she's read online made her worry about adverse reactions. But, Sarai says, if someone she trusted showed her evidence the vaccine is safe, she could change her mind.
For Harvest Public Media, I'm Christine Herman. This story was co-reported with Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin in collaboration with Side Effects Public Media and the Midwest Center for Investigative Reporting. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. Thanks for joining us. Sour beer. Are you a fan? Did you even know sour beer was a thing? Either way, you'll learn more about it in this next interview. Dr. Matt Bachman is a professor of biochemistry at Indiana University. He spoke with IU anthropologists and food scholars Lee Bush and Maddie Chera about his work with yeast. Maddie Chera gets us started. Dr. Bachman, could you tell us a little bit about your research? Um, so I'm, I'm mostly a biochemist, I guess, okay. if I had to put a title on myself. Okay. Um, and my lab does a lot of research on DNA replication and repair. Um, so the types of things that go wrong that end up giving people cancer or other other bad diseases. Uh, but we use yeast as our model organism to, to ask and answer lots of questions in biology. And so it's sort of a natural extension of, of my lab and my hobby. And that's, that's where the fermentation science came in. Dr. Bachman does research with yeast in his lab. And he also has a business called Wild Pitch Yeast, which we'll hear more about. I moved here to, to Indiana 2013, summer of 2013, and pretty soon after that started to go yeast hunting for various reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we, we've got a collection of hundreds of, of mostly local, mostly, all, you know, Indiana born and raised yeast strains in the freezer in the lab now. Um, and they've got all sorts of interesting, uh, what a scientist might call phenotypes or what a drinker might just call flavors. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we've got ones that make beer sour and ones that make beer smell like tropical drinks and taste like strawberries and everything in between. Um, and the reason people haven't used these before um, is basically because of industrialization of beer. You hmm. know, back in the day, it was standardized like everything else that if you use these strains, you'll get a consistent product. And you'll always be able to crank out that batch of beer and take it to market. But I think probably historically, the types of strains we're really rediscovering were probably pretty common in Europe and elsewhere in whether it was beer or mead or your favorite fermented beverage. If you take yeast from one place and and use it to brew a beer in another place, so say you have a, a German a yeast from Germany and you bring it to Bloomington, will it um, will the local yeasts take over or will you be able to preserve the flavors that you brought from the other place? So most most brewers and that's, you know, 
99% of craft brewers and 100% of, you know, macros. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all using, well, not, I shouldn't say all, but basically all using European origin strains. So these are things that, you know, came from Germany, uh, from, you know, where lagers were invented or they, they're British ale strains or something like that. And they do single culture brewing. So all they're putting in the beer is this particular yeast. And if it's the Coors yeast, you know, it's locked in a vault somewhere and only the Coors people can get to it. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's that, same, that same flavor characteristic or aromatic characteristic or whatever fermentation character they're looking for from that strain, batch after batch after batch. Um, but there are breweries that do what's called open fermentation, and literally, you know, the tank is, is open to the air. And so they, they may inoculate it with their favorite strain, but then Mother Nature is going to sprinkle things in there too. And then really it's just a race to see who can use up all of those natural resources in the beer. Um, brewing strains are really, really good. They've been selected over hundreds and thousands of years of brewing to eat sugar really quick. And mm-hmm. so I would, I would tend to think they'd probably dominate cultures like that. But Mother Nature's come up with some pretty hardy creatures too. So you never know what's going to get in there and, and do some fun things. Bachman's work involves collaborating with Indiana craft brewers collecting yeast strands for brewing. They call it a bioprospecting or yeast hunting. They're looking for wild yeast with desirable brewing characteristics. They brew test batches of beer and conduct sensory analysis of the final products. They also provide yeast consulting, banking, and lab services, and they've worked with several local breweries and distilleries. So it seems like one of the ways that you do this is you engage with the public in order to um, get some of these yeast strains um, through citizen science and working with home brewing communities. Yeah. Um, what's the relationship between crowdsourced information and your institutionalized research and I guess also your business? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those, those are all good questions. So, I mean, a lot of science ends up being sort of out of, out of the public eye, you know, whether, whether it's because people just can't understand it because scientists feel the need to use jargon that nobody can swim through, <laughs> even their colleagues who are just in a slightly different field. Um, or they publish in a journal that's not open access, and so you know, unless you're at an institution with a with a subscription, you can't get to it. But the you know the benefit of the fermentation science really isn't to scientists always. It's really to the people that are fermenting things, like home brewers and craft brewers. So I've I've really tried to make this as accessible to the people that might want it as I possibly can. So I'll archive copies of the papers on my lab website and put them on ResearchGate, and we started putting them on BioArchive, and so as long as you've got an internet connection, you can, you can get to the data. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah. we, have, we have funded some of this by, by crowdsourcing, crowdfunding it. Um, you know, the NIH doesn't want to give me money to make beer, and so we've had to come up with other ways to, to fund some of the research, and, you know, we, we had, I think it was 60 backers on one of our projects to look at the, the sour beer microbiome, oh, uh, which was really great, and everywhere from just my mom throwing in a couple of dollars to craft brewers to people that just think fermentation's neat. Um, I have I have spun out some of this into a business, Wild Pitch Yeast, to try to um, sell some of these yeast strains we're we're finding to interested people. Ideally, if once we get Wild Pitch Yeast really up and running and rolling, you know, you'd be able to buy a, a collection kit where you can, like I said, go to your backyard or your favorite place outside and find some things and send them in, and we'll tell you what yeasts are out there and be able to return them to you to make your own beer. 
So you've mentioned before that you've had to train your nose and taste buds for describing the beers that you produce, partly because um, citizens will give different yeast strains to you, and then after you isolate and brew with them, you have to tell them what you've created. Yeah. What is the process of training your nose and your taste buds to be able to describe beer like? Yeah, so there's there's lots of different ways to do this, and you know UC Davis has a great sort of sensory program, right? This is all sensory analysis, and you you basically train yourself on known samples. You know, for instance, if you want to do sensory analysis of beer, you know, beer has malted barley in it and hops, for instance. So you can train yourself on what common hop flavors or hop aromas are, mm-hmm. so that if you're given a blind sample, then you can pick up on you know what that chemical is whether it's in your nose or in your mouth, and say, oh, okay, that's, that's a, a hop essence I'm getting at, or that's, that's what malty is considered as, as a flavor. And so some of it's just really, you know, as a beer drinker, you're used to these flavors. Now let's put some terminology into it. Uh, the hard part is when you get something that doesn't taste like a normal beer, and then all of a sudden you're like, okay, wait a minute, that's super familiar. What is that? What is that? And that's where a sensory panel, a number of people getting involved is really handy. So somebody's like, oh, that's strawberry. And then that clicks in your head. That's exactly right. But strawberry is so far from my normal understanding of beer that I was, my brain was having trouble connecting the two. Could you tell us a little bit more about what sour beers are and what um, developments you've made? Yeah, especially why they have to be kept separate. Yeah, yeah. So, so sours are traditionally or generally maybe soured with bacteria. Um, and the bacteria make lactic acid, and that's what gives it that tart, sour flavor. And if somebody's making an IPA or a brown ale or, a, a, you know, a quote-unquote normal beer, you don't want it to be sour. You don't want it to be tart. That's considered an off flavor. In Bloomington, a local brewery called Upland recently built a separate building to produce their sour beers. So for Upland, before they actually had a separate facility in the wood shop to make sour beer, when they were doing everything in the same place at the same time, they were probably sweating bullets, right? Because yeah. if you get one bacterium in a batch of Dragonfly IPA, that's enough to ruin the whole batch, and you don't you don't want to dump that down the drain. Um, and bacteria are smaller than yeast, and so they can get in the nooks and crannies of all the brewing equipment, and they're really hard to clean out. And so even with really good cleaning procedures... Uh, it just takes one cell to, to ruin the next batch. Um, and so that, that's why people usually make them in separate facilities or they just focus on sour beer or clean beer and they won't mess with the other one because they don't want to deal with the, the headaches. Our, our sort of most recent claim to fame, I guess, is that we found yeast, pure culture yeast, that will also sour beer. And you can kill the yeast the same way you could kill any other brewing strain. So, you know, Upland might use a California ale yeast and a Belgian ale yeast and, a, you know, a German Hefeweizen strain to make three different beers. But they don't worry about cross-contamination because they know they've got cleaning procedures that kill those yeasts. Mm-hmm. And these things you can c- kill the same way. So you can technically now make sour beer and clean beer in the same facility without having to worry or go nuclear when you're when you're cleaning things. And I know we have two fairly new cider sizeries, cider makers in town. Is that something that yeast gets involved with as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, oftentimes the, these, uh, well, mead makers and cider makers and sizer makers and kombucha makers and whatever it might be, it's really this, the same strains that everybody uses if you're at a winery or a distillery or whatever. Um, and so actually, I, I was down at uh, Friendly Beasts the other day, the new, yeah. the new cidery, and introduced myself and left, left them my card and told them we work with local weird stuff, and they seemed excited about that. So, um, yeah, hopefully we'll be able to get involved with more people. 
That was Maddie Chera and Lee Bush of the IU Food Institute talking with Matt Bachman, a biochemist at Indiana University. That interview took place in 2017. Learn more about Dr. Bachman's current research at eartheats.org. January is when gardeners are stuck inside, thumbing through seed catalogs and dreaming of summer tomatoes. This year, I am determined to get a good cucumber crop. I've struggled with pests and disease in recent years, so I'm troubleshooting and planning ahead. It got me thinking about a story from a couple years ago out at the White Violet Center for Eco-Justice at the Sisters of Providence of St. Mary of the Woods in Terre Haute, Indiana. The center is home to a small-scale farm. It's five acres of certified organic gardens, a couple of acres of fruit trees, and they raise alpacas for wool and chickens for eggs. The garden provides the Sisters of Providence with fresh produce. They also run a CSA, sell at the local farmer's market, and stock a farm store on site. The center also serves as an educational space, and in some cases, a place for research. I was there to hear about a cucumber grafting study. You might have heard of fruit tree grafting, where the upper part of, say, a peach tree, with especially sweet fruit, is grafted to the rootstock of a type of tree that is known to grow well in a particular area. It's a pretty common practice. I'd never thought of grafting cucumbers, and I wanted to learn more. Farm manager Candace Minster was the person to talk to. So we can walk up to the tunnel, the height tunnels, and take a look at the cucumber plants. Okay, that sounds great. This one, I'm keeping it closed. Generally, we would have the tunnels open. It's about uh, about 54, 55 right now, and it's overcast. But that's plenty warm enough for the cool crops that we we have. However, inside this tunnel, we have a grafted cucumber study that we're doing with Purdue University. So these uh, cucumbers don't like to be cold. <laughs> so I'm trying to baby them along a little bit. So we'll go inside. You can already feel the difference. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> it smells so good in here. It smells so earthy and so these are the cucumbers, and um, we're growing two beds of cucumber plants, and we have three varieties. And for each variety, we have grafted plants and non-grafted plants. We're growing them on a trellis, and we'll train the plants to grow up the trellis, and that's a, a really great tip for anybody, even in a home garden. You can really maximize your space by trellising your cucumbers up rather than letting them sprawl on the ground, and your cucumbers will stay cleaner and get uh, less insect damage that way. This is our second year doing a study. Uh, the researcher, her name's Wenjing Guan, and she's originally from China, and her area of specialty is in grafted vegetables. And tomatoes have 
have been the superstar of the grafted world for the last few years. And um, now there's a little bit more in the melon industry, but cucumbers, not so much. So Wenjing's part of a pretty new project, really, seeing if grafted cucumbers can provide a benefit for organic growers. So specifically, what she's doing is taking the top of the, which is called the scion, of the cucumber plant that is the desirable plant that you want to have to harvest. So this Taurus cucumber is um, kind of a longer style, like an English style cucumber, uh, not huge seeds. And then the rootstock is actually a winter squash. And so the little squash plant is grown and then the little cucumber plant is grown and then you decapitate that poor little squash <laughs> and you cut that top of that little cucumber and then you join the two together and you can use a little clip that will hold the two the two tissues together so here's one of them and the interesting thing about these is as the plant grows it will shed the clip so it's not so tight that it's going to cause tissue damage. So this sounds like an incredibly delicate process. When I think of a cucumber stem or a squash stem, I think of this hollow, watery, delicate thing and especially as a seedling. Yes, it is. So as part of her study, Wenjing is doing some ongoing education around cucumber grafting and just really grafting in general. So she invited us to go to the Purdue University Research Center outside of Vincennes, Indiana, and see the grafting process and learn about it and even attempt it. <laughs> and it is very, very delicate. What she's been looking at are the Persian style cucumbers or uh, English cucumbers, the seedless varieties, the ones that can get a little higher dollar value on uh, the wholesale market or even from a, a regular retail market at the farmer's market. There are a lot of different factors that you can study for when you are looking at grafted plants and she's specifically looking at productivity and the early seasonality. So the idea behind having them grafted onto the squash rootstock is that the squash is more cold tolerant than the cucumber is. So she's trying to determine if that squash rootstock will help pass on some of that uh, cold hardiness to the cucumber plant. And then also uh, as the growing season is underway and we're harvesting, we track the weight that we get off of the cucumbers and we also track how many fruit come off of each plant and then that will uh, and then of course running a comparison of the grafted to non-grafted to see which ones perform the best. There's a lot of record keeping and and you know keeping track of everything as we go through the season. And that's something you're doing here not the researcher. That's correct. So um, I already track when we harvest how much of what we harvest. We tend to stick to the same few people that we'll harvest in here so, because we're familiar with it. And, and then that way we can keep the data pretty clean for Wenjing uh, because we want this to be beneficial for her research.
one of the things that is hoped for is cold tolerance. Mm-hmm. Could it impact how many fruit you would harvest from each plant? Like that, that's mm-hmm. a little less obvious to me. Yes. Yeah, so we noticed last year was the first time we, we did this. And we noticed with a couple of the varieties that the grafted plants did have a little higher yield. What was interesting to me was that the non-grafted plants were the first to fruit, but the grafted plants, even though they didn't fruit as quickly, produced more and over a little longer period of time. So we did see a marked difference in uh, one of the other varieties that we had last season of the performance of the grafted to the non-grafted. So you would not normally be starting some a really warm weather crop like that in here right now is that correct that's correct right so everything else that's in here is we have lettuce carrots radishes spinach arugula it's all cool season tolerant things can i look at them so these are the so these are um this side are not grafted this side these are grafted these are the grafted ones yes okay so if we get down and if you look at the soil level just above the soil level you'll see this this bump yep and that is the grafting join so right down here this is the squash and then this is where the cucumber begins well i can see just uh, from the naked eye that mm-hmm. these are taller mm-hmm. they're they're further along and it looks like they're fruiting yes yes they are and uh, or making blossoms or something they are. well yeah and I've been picking off some of the the first fruit those baby fruit and as we were trimming pinching some of these off <laughs> this is what we do around here we're like hmm, I wonder if this part is edible <laughs> I wonder what this tastes like <laughs> and we discovered that these little teeny teeny baby fruit are really tasty <laughs> wow okay I have tried to eat a cucumber sprout mm-hmm. not good yeah tastes really bad <laughs> really bitter yeah yeah but the little tiny baby fruit are are pretty good so you can okay, eat okay. that little guy I will try it. (laughs) That's great. That's really good. Tastes like a cucumber. Little little mini one. Compact. (laughs) In case you were wondering why she would pinch off the little cucumbers when the whole point is to get early fruit production, it's because late April is too early for the plants to set fruit. These guys were just transplanted into the soil and they'd been waiting in pots a bit too long, again, with the cold spring. So they're stressed. Stressed plants set fruit. It's a survival mechanism. Candace wants the plants to be stronger and healthier before they set their fruit, so she's delaying that a bit by pinching them off. I got Wenjing Guan on the phone to ask about her study. I asked what was most exciting to her about this research. The most exciting moment is like this morning I was with a farmer, um, I'm collaborating with, and he have the grafted cucumbers and the, and the normal cucumbers planted in end of March this year. And the, this morning I saw, I'm standing in the field with him, we saw the normal cucumbers, probably only 10 to 20% arrived, and all the grafted plants, they all survived. <laughs> that, that's very exciting. <laughs> 
planting cucumbers in the ground in March in Indiana. Quite an accomplishment, especially in a cold spring like they were having that year. Wenjing said the next phase is teaching farmers to graft their own seedlings to continue to reap the benefits after the study is complete. I am not sure if I'm up for grafting cucumbers this year, but you never know the links I'm willing to go to for a good batch of pickles. Candace Minster was the garden manager for 10 years at White Violet Center for Eco-Justice. She's now the garden and fiber arts coordinator. Wen Jingguan is a horticulture specialist at Purdue University. That story was produced in the spring of 2018. Learn more about her research at eartheats.org. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for listening. Earth Eats team includes Aobon Binder, Spencer Bowman, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Peyton Knoblek, Josephine McRobbie, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Maddie Chera, Lee Bush, Matt Bachman, Curtis McBride, Adam Brown, Teresa Moon, Candace Minster, and Wen Jingguan. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. <laughs>